Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week 26, the book of Revelation, chapter 12, continued. We began what is essentially a new section of Revelation last week, that's chapter 12. Now it's a chapter that is heavy, even predominantly reliant, on symbolism. Now of course, that means that our job is to decode exactly what those symbols are symbolizing. Let's remember that the purpose of John's visions is not to present us with a series of mind-bending riddles and mysteries that leave us and no doubt, no doubt John confused, frustrated. The Lord is not playing a cosmic game of Wheel of Fortune with us. Rather these symbols are a means of expressing future happenings in a way that can transcend time and culture often having no discernible meaning until the right time in history approaches. And even as these prophesied moments in history arrive, even become the past, the true understanding of these symbols is only intended, hear me, it's only intended for a very specific and privileged audience. Why does God obscure Bible prophecies and symbols? Christ's answer to that question is found in Luke 8. And it was this, in Luke 8, verse 10. And he said, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God. But the rest are taught in parables so that they may look but not see and listen but not understand. Any literate person can pick up a Bible, read the book of Revelation, but only some people, believers, are meant to comprehend it. Many of the end times prophecies were given while the prophets were in a foreign land that was hostile to the people of God. Daniel and Ezekiel, for instance, wrote while in exile in Babylon during the 6th century BC. God concealed the prophecies that were meant only for those who worshipped him by cloaking them in symbols in order to protect that divine message from those who had no right to know the meaning. This is why Nebuchadnezzar had to call for a God worshiper, Daniel, to make any sense whatsoever of those night visions he was having that tormented him so. Now there are movements within modern Christianity that believe that the truths of the Bible, especially those of the New Testament, even more so of the symbols of Revelation, are unique to each and every person who reads them. That is, what is truth for one can be a different truth when read by another. I've heard this over and over. Thus, what is sin for one is not necessarily sin for all. In our case, that would mean that there is no one correct way to read and interpret John's apocalypse and no one correct understanding or application of the many symbols that are used. I categorically deny that that's the case. Otherwise, there is no such thing as truth. 
There is no universal standard of right and wrong. There is no rightly dividing God's word. If there are multiple truths, that would also mean that the fulfillment of any biblical prophecy could happen in multiple ways simultaneously. It's self-evident that such a thing is impossible, at least it is in our four-dimensional universe. So how are we to discern a prophetic truth or the meaning of a symbol in the Bible, and especially as we study Revelation? We must first begin at the source, and invariably that source is the place in the Bible that is a no-go zone for too many denominations, the Old Testament, where the original prophecies and their contexts are divinely given. That said, as history unfolds, time and circumstance can also help to reveal the true meaning of a prophecy or a symbol. Yet in the instance of prophecy that has still not been fulfilled by our day, we must be aware that the prophecy or the symbol might have more than one reasonable solution within the limited information that's currently available to us. And that is only because it's not yet time for its true, absolute meaning to be known. But always, whatever the true divine meaning, it is meant only for God worshipers and nobody else. No one else is equipped to discern, to know, no one else has the right to know because no one else than believers carry the Holy Spirit of God within us as our teacher. Therefore, on numerous occasions I have given and will continue to give you more than one reasonable solution to a symbolic puzzle but only because we don't yet have sufficient information to be certain which or maybe if either solution we can rely on as the correct one but make no mistake there is only one correct answer to what a symbol is symbolizing and to how exactly a prophecy is going to be fulfilled even if we can't quite put the pieces together at this point in history. On the other hand, history has progressed far enough that we can reliably know what certain symbols mean and we can identify exactly when and how certain prophecies have been fulfilled long after the time that the Bible was completed and closed up. So last week, we came upon a couple of important symbols in the opening verses of chapter 12. The pregnant woman clothed in the sun with a crown of 12 stars and the great red dragon. And we went through a series of explanations as to how we are able to positively identify them. Briefly, the woman is Israel. And the great red dragon is Satan. We can know this because the woman was well described and prophesied all the way back in Genesis 37. The story of a young Joseph explaining to his family a divine vision that he had. The identity of the red dragon is actually very easy because while it is first spoken of in chapter 12 verse 3, chapter 12 verse 9 says exactly who he is. It says he is the ancient serpent, the devil, the adversary, the deceiver of the whole world. However, we also got more detail about the red dragon that can be difficult to follow. Let's reread the first several verses of Revelation chapter 12. 
So open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 12. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, it is page 1543. 1543. I'm going to read the first 12 verses. Now a great sign was seen in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, under her feet the moon, on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant, she was about to give birth, and she screamed in the agony of her labor. Another sign was seen in heaven. There was a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on its heads were seven royal crowns. Its tail swept a third of the stars out of heaven, threw them down to the earth. And it stood in front of the woman about to give birth, so that it might devour the child the moment it was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child, the one who will rule all the nations with a staff of iron. But her child was snatched up to God and to his throne, and she fled into the desert where she had a place prepared by God so that she could be taken care of for 1,260 days. Next, there was a battle in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but it was not strong enough to win so that there was no longer any place for them in heaven. The great dragon was thrown out, that ancient serpent, also known as the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, and he was hurled down to the earth, and his angels were hurled down with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now have come God's victory, power, and kingship, and the authority of his Messiah. Because the accuser of our brothers, who accuses them day and night before God, has been thrown out. They defeated him because of the Lamb's blood and because of the message of their witness. Even when facing death, they did not cling to life. Therefore rejoice, heaven, and you who live there. But woe to you, land and sea, for the adversary has come down to you, and he is very angry, because he knows his time is short. In verse 3, the devil, or the spirit of the devil, is symbolized as having seven heads and ten horns. Now let's address that aspect of the red dragon. It is most common among Christian Bible commentators to say that this is a direct reference to the fourth beast in Daniel's dream vision. In Daniel chapter 7, we read this. In verse 7, After this I looked in the night visions, and there before me was a fourth animal, dreadful, horrible, extremely strong, with great iron teeth. It devoured, crushed, and stamped its feet on what was left. It was different from all the animals that had gone before it, and it had ten horns. Now David Stern in his Revelation commentary says, its seven heads and ten horns also equate it with the fourth beast of Daniel 7.7. G.K. Beale in his Revelation commentary says, the ten horns are those of Daniel's fourth beast and will reappear on the beast of Revelation chapter 13, showing that the devil performs his oppressive will against the church and the world. I cannot agree with these scholars. Nothing in verse 7 or in any other description of Daniel's fourth beast says that the beast has seven heads. Only that it has ten horns. So these two commentators, along with almost all others that I researched, read into Daniel 7-7 something that is not there. They just assume that if the beast has ten horns, then in order to get it to equate to the beast of Revelation 12.3, it must also have seven heads. 
So if this is not the case, then where in the Old Testament prophecies do we find a beast with seven heads to go along with the ten horns? Answer, we don't. Yet there is another possibility that while I cannot say for absolute certain it's correct, it is the best option for us at this time. It is that when we look at earlier verses of Daniel 7, we read this. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babel, Daniel had a dream and visions in his head as he was lying on his bed and he wrote the dream down. And this is his account. I had a vision at night. I saw there before me the four winds of the sky breaking out over the great sea. Four huge animals came up out of the sea, each different from the others. The first was like a lion, but it had eagle's wings. And as I watched, its wings were plucked off. And it was lifted off the earth and made to stand on two feet like a man. And a human heart was given to it. There was a second animal, like a bear. It raised itself up on one side, had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. It was told, get up and gorge yourself with flesh. After I looked, and there was another one, like a leopard, with four bird's wings on its sides. This animal had four heads, and it was given power to rule. And after this, I looked in the night visions, and there before me was a fourth animal, dreadful, horrible, extremely strong, with great iron teeth. It devoured, crushed, stamped its feet on what was left. It was different from all the other animals that had gone before it. It had ten horns. We have the fourth beast with ten horns, but still no beast with seven heads. We do have one beast, the third beast, that has four heads, but four and seven, is it? When we get to chapter 13, we get another beast, and it too is described as having seven heads and ten horns, but its description goes into much more detail. But for now, I'll just point this out. I think the description of the Revelation chapter 12 beast of seven heads and ten horns is a hybrid of all the four beasts of Daniel chapter 7. Here's my reasoning. Get out your pencil and paper and do a little math. Beast 1 has one head, no horns. Beast 2 has one head, no horns. Beast 3 has four heads, but no horns. Beast 4 has one head, but ten horns. When we add up the number of heads of all four of Daniel's beasts, guess what we get? Seven. When we add up the number of horns of the same four beasts, we get ten. So the seven heads and the ten hordes equals the totality of the beasts of Daniel chapter 7. Further, seven is a number of completion and wholeness. Ten is also a number of completion, but also of universality. Now we're going to explore this a lot further in Revelation 13. I'm pretty comfortable with this being the solution to the beast with seven heads and ten horns of Revelation 12.3, while acknowledging that it is not impossible that there could be another and better solution. However, the most commonly held solution that it simply represents the fourth beast of Daniel chapter 7 just defies Holy Scripture. Chapter 12, 4 states that this dragon used his tail 
to sweep one-third of the stars out of heaven and throw them down to earth. Now we discussed this at length last time, so I'll only summarize it. This is speaking from an earthly perspective of both a past and a future event. The past event was when Satan was hurled out of heaven and sent to earth and there were some number of fallen angels that followed him. This would have been at the time of Adam and Eve. When on earth Satan was first identified as the serpent. The future event is still future to us again from an earthly perspective of time and space. And it connects with this battle of heaven, or battle in heaven rather, that is spoken of in verse 7. Now we're going to come back to that because I prefer to keep the the flow of this chapter going. So continuing verse 4, we read that the dragon being hurled down to earth stood in front of the pregnant woman, Israel, in order that the moment she gave birth it could kill her child. This is referring to the birth story of Christ. And of course we know that as soon as Herod the Great heard about the birth of a Messiah and a future king of Israel, he determined to find this infant Messiah and kill him. Why does Satan want to kill the child? Because he is well aware of God's plan of salvation for the earth. And he knows that this child... The Messiah is the cornerstone of that plan. In fact, this child will eventually replace Satan as Lord of the earth. How does a mere human being accomplish this? He can't. Rather, this child was conceived by the Spirit of God and so in some incomprehensible way is God. Now we can be certain this is the case because continuing in verse 5 we get a further description of this seemingly impossible paradox by which a human woman births a human child who is also God. It is that the pregnant woman will give birth to a son, a male child. Now many language experts and commentators point out this peculiar phrase, a son, a male child. And it's not found elsewhere in the scriptures. Nor can anyone find a parallel of this phrase in Greek Greek literature. This is pretty interesting actually. The Greek word translated as male, child, or just male is arsen. And indeed, it means the male gender. The Greek word translated as son is huios. And it means son or son of man. So a literal translation would give us something like a male child son of man. Now, this on the surface seems almost nonsensical, perhaps maybe even just redundant. But when we understand that in the New Testament what we have is Hebrew thought and Jewish cultural norms being recorded in the Greek language, I think there is a solution. In Hebrew, a male is an ish as opposed to a woman who is an isha. But in Hebrew, a son of man is called Ben-Adam, which in English most accurately simply means human being. Now, Ben, son, Adam, man. Okay, I'm going to make this clear. Ben-Adam literally is son of man. But what it means using our modern vernacular is human being. So literally this is saying that the pregnant woman is going to be giving birth to a son that's a human being. So this is not a tribe she's producing. 
It's not a nation. It's a person. Israel, the woman, will produce a special male human being that Satan once immediately destroyed. That would seem odd to all but Christians. That is because believers understand that while Mary's child would be a male human being, he is also God's Messiah and is himself divine. Nonetheless, this divine human is exactly that. Thoroughly a living, breathing, eating, flesh and blood male human being. He was born helpless and vulnerable, needing his mother's milk, care, protection, just like any other infant. And yet, he would be the promised deliverer of Israel. So once again, we see this minor symbolism of the woman as Mary, but the major symbolism of the woman is collective Israel. And while the minor symbolism of the child is that he is a human male, the major symbolism is that this is a human being, a son of man, that is also the divine Messiah. Now to help us be clear on who this child is that's being spoken about, John includes the words, the one who will rule all the nations with a staff of iron. Now this is taken from Psalm 2 that was written hundreds of years before John. It is a thoroughly messianic psalm and the Jews of his day believed that as well. In Psalm 2, 7 through 9, we read, I will, I will proclaim the decree. Adonai has said to me, You are my son. Today I became your father. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your inheritance. The whole wide world will be your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron, shatter them like a clay pot. Satan tried at Yeshua's birth to kill him in order to thwart God's will, but he failed. Later on, when Christ was an adult, Satan tried again. Thought he had succeeded. Yeshua was crucified on a cross. And yet in reality, what appeared to be a victory for the devil was in fact his crushing moment of defeat. His fate was sealed because through the death of his son, God accomplished redemption for the world. Thus we are told at the end of verse 5 that this woman's child was snatched up to God and to his throne. This is speaking of Christ's resurrection and then ascension to heaven and then as he stood before his father alive and victorious. All of these actions are in the past. Even for John. They're in John's past. But verse 6 now takes us into the future. In this case it's our, even our own future. Now I spoke about this last week, but what we have here is sometimes called temporal telescoping. I just prefer to think of it as a panorama from the past to the future that's being laid out before us. And what we have is the woman, Israel, fleeing into the desert to a place especially prepared by God for a period of 1,260 days three and one half years. And it is this place where Israel will be cared for by God for some unnamed reason. However, since the subject has been the subject of uh, the persecution by Satan and his earthly henchmen on Yeshua and on Yeshua's people then we can understand that the protection of the woman in the desert is protection from that same evil source. 
in both the Old and the New Testaments, the desert or the wilderness is a place of safety, of discipline, of waiting for the promises of God to materialize. It was in the desert that John the Baptist was protected as he was prepared to announce the coming of the Savior. It was in the desert that the Hebrew refugees from Egypt were protected, disciplined, and they waited for the promise made to Abraham that his descendants would have a land of their own to possess. But then war began. And verse 7 explains there was a battle in heaven. The forces of good were led by Michael, Michael, and those angels loyal to him. And they fought against the dragon, Satan, and those angels loyal to him. We have here another example of the reality of duality. That is, what was going on in heaven is also taking place on earth. God and those loyal to him in heaven are fighting against the evil one and the evil one's soldiers in the spiritual sphere. On earth, God and those humans loyal to him are fighting against those humans are loyal who are loyal to Satan, probably in the person of the Antichrist, in the physical sphere. However, in a more technical sense, the mention of Michael seems to indicate that this battle in heaven has mostly to do with Israel. Mostly to do with Israel. There are some things we can gather from what we know of him, of Michael in the Bible that indicates his primary duty as the defender of Israel. His Hebrew name means who is like God. Jude 9 mentions him specifically as an archangel. Daniel 12, he's called the great prince. And we also read in Daniel 12, starting at verse 1, when that time comes, Michael, the great prince who champions your people, will stand up. And there will be a time of distress, unparalleled between the time they became a nation and that moment. At that time, your people will be delivered, everyone whose name is found written in the book. So Michael's purpose is as the champion, protector, and defender of Israel. And we are also told that at some point there will be a time of distress that will come upon Israel that has no historical parallel. But they will be delivered. At least those among Israel whose names are found in the book. No doubt meaning the book of life. This has to be connected to the woman fleeing to the desert for protection and for the great battle in heaven that is led by Michael. I want to remind you, this is still in the future for us living today. Now, I'm going to pause for a moment to put this in the context of the most prominent current church doctrine about the end times. At least that's the case in the Western world. The pre-tribulation dispensationalism. That is, it's the one popularized by Hal Lindsey, Tim LaHaye, and it first created by John Darby. For them, the woman represents the church. Therefore, the child that flees to the desert for protection is the community of believers. Some, like Beale, who agree with this doctrine, modify it a little bit by admitting that the woman must be Israel in some sense. But those who flee into the desert will only be those Jews who have become believers, what we know today we call Messianic Jews. I'm going to say emphatically, nowhere in these passages does Israel suddenly become the church. And nowhere are the Jewish survivors of Israel or those protected in the desert only those who have accepted their Messiah. This attitude and spin 
on Holy Scripture exists only to comply with the pre-tribulation dispensational church doctrine. Much has to be read into these passages that is simply not there in order to build the defense of such a doctrine. So now verse 8 switches the scene back to the battle of good and evil that's going on in heaven and it continues on into verse 9. Now you know, I think it's strange to think about war in heaven. I mean, this is, this is a place to which we ascribe perfection and bliss and ideal peace. And yet, it's in heaven where Satan committed his great sin. And so in heaven, he's going to face his ultimate doom. Satan and his minions lose the battle in heaven. Now there's no longer a place for them there. In other words, Satan could no longer travel freely between earth and heaven, nor could the treasonous angels who sided with him. A couple of thoughts. First, it is clear that just as humans have the choice of choosing evil or good, so do the angels. They are, after all, created beings. Although we know very little about angels from the Holy Scriptures, this much we can ascertain. They had wills. And they exercised them. And just as for humans, the angels could also be corrupted by evil. But wait. This action of Satan being deposed is supposed to be in the future. Didn't this happen already a long time ago at or before the time of the Garden of Eden? Weren't Satan and his fallen angels expelled from heaven at that time and sent into exile to earth? Yes and no. Apparently, that was only the first step of judgment for Satan and his henchmen. We know from other biblical passages that one of the prime occupations of Satan was as an accuser of the brethren. In Job, we hear of Satan still having access to heaven. Job 1, 6-12 It happened one day that the sons of God came to serve Adonai and among them came the adversary. Adonai asked the adversary, Where are you coming from? And the adversary answered that, and I, from roaming through the earth, wandering here and there. And Adam and I asked the adversary, did you notice my servant, my servant Job, and there's no one like him on earth, a blameless, upright man who fears God and shuns evil? And the adversary answered that, and I, is it for nothing that Job fears God? You've put a protective hedge around him, his house, everything he has. You've prospered his work and his livestock are spread out all over the land. But if you reach out your hand and touch whatever he has, without doubt, he'll curse you to your face. Adonai said to the adversary, Here, everything has now is in your hands, except that you're not to lay a finger on his person. Then the adversary went out from the presence of Adonai. Now much is said about Satan, the adversary, in these verses. And here we find him standing before God in heaven. We find out he wanders with full freedom around the earth because that is currently his realm. 1 Peter 5.8 Stay sober, stay alert. Your enemy, the adversary, stalks about like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. He apparently used to have some amount of authority in heaven such that he was given access to the throne room of Jehovah. And heaven was his natural home before he became proud and fell. Now we read that God puts boundaries around what Satan can and cannot do in heaven. So in some limited 
but undefined way, Satan is permitted to this day to stand before God's throne in heaven. There's another Old Testament passage that sheds further light on Satan's activities. You find it in Second Chronicles, interestingly. 8, 17 through 22. The king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, Didn't I tell you that he wouldn't prophesy good things about me, but bad? And Michal continued, Therefore hear the word of Adonai. I saw Adonai sitting on his throne with the whole army of heaven standing on his right and on his left. And Adonai asked, Who will entice Ahav, king of Israel, to go up to his death at remote Gilead? And one of them said, Do it this way. And another said, Do it that way. Then a spirit stepped up. And he stood in front of Adonai and he said, I'll entice him. And Adonai asked, How? And he asked, he answered, I will go and be a deceiving spirit in the mouths of all of his prophets. And Adonai said, You will succeed in enticing him. Go, do it. So now Adonai has put a deceiving spirit in the mouths of these prophets of yours. Meanwhile, Adonai has ordained disaster for you. So here we have Satan described as a deceiving spirit. He is before God. He volunteers, I'll do it, to what lies into the mouths of certain prophets on earth. So clearly the devil was not completely and finally separated from God and from heaven at the time of the Garden of Eden. But sometime in the future, after a battle against Michael, Satan will become permanently banished from God's presence, as will Satan's angelic followers. This is the next step that is moving towards their final judgment. This means that from that moment forward, there will be no one to accuse the brethren before God in heaven. Verse 9 highlights Satan's main character and his attributes. Revelation 12.9 The great dragon was thrown out, that ancient serpent also known as the devil and Satan, the adversary, the deceiver of the whole world. He was hurled down to the earth and his angels were hurled down with him. So Satan is said to be that ancient serpent, the one in the garden. The devil. Satan, meaning the adversary. And the deceiver, that deceiving spirit we just read about. We see him in Genesis as the serpent, a figure of evil. In Greek, the word devil is diabolos, which means false accuser. The word Satan in Greek is satanus, which means adversary, one who opposes. In Greek, the word deceive is Planal. It means to lead astray. And John says that Satan led the entire world astray. No wonder he's in the process of being judged. Now where the complete Jewish Bible says that as a result of losing the battle, Satan and his fallen angels were hurled down to earth, what it more accurately says is that they were cast out to earth. See, the idea is not that God sent them to earth. He didn't give them a one-way ticket to New York. It is that they were banished and entirely cut off from heaven. So, they had to find somewhere to reside. And the only habitable physical place known is planet earth, which Satan had been lord over for many, many centuries. So logically, that's where they all went. But his time of lording over the earth is nearly done. Christ is about to return to claim the right to be lord of the earth. God is replacing the kingdom of Satan with the kingdom of God. 
And once Christ is king, where will Satan go? If he's not allowed in heaven, and he can't operate on earth. That is more or less the point of the end chapters of Revelation. He and his fallen angels not not only will have nowhere to go, but as his final judgment, his existence and theirs will be brought to an end. So he will go kicking and screaming, wreaking as much havoc upon the earth and its inhabitants, believing to the last there has to be some way to defeat God. Now indeed, as Beale sees it, chapter 12 can be subtitled, The Conflict of the Serpent with the Woman and Her Seed. What we have seen being played out is essentially the history of Israel and her seed, Christ, for the purpose of deliverance and redemption of Israel. Versus the history of the devil and his seed, which is death and chaos and the destruction of Israel. And it is all rather summed up in verses 10 through 12, which is a song sung by somebody in heaven. We're not told who. Charles Feinberg, a wonderful Bible scholar, says this about that passage. In the apocalypse, when earth mourns, heaven rejoices. An indication of how out of tune with heaven earth is. An excellent observation to my thinking. Verse 10 begins by declaring that the kingdom of God is no longer coming. It's here. And it's in full force. It is God's victory over Satan and now the earth has a new Lord. The Messiah Yeshua. And why is this? The verse continues by saying it is because the accuser, Satan, has been 100% banished from heaven. He no longer has the right to access heaven and tattle on believers, pointing out to God our sins and our faults. We must always keep in mind that while creation was the beginning of human history, Christ's death and resurrection was its turning point. Even though so few humans know it or acknowledge it as such. Verse 11 goes on to explain how Satan's defeat came about. It's interesting. It was because of the blood of the Lamb and, it says, because of the faithful and courageous witness of Christ's followers, even if it meant their own lives. So the manner of victory is quite different than the manner in which Michael the arch the archangel defeated Satan in literal combat combat in heaven. For one thing, Christ's victory took place on earth for the sake of earth's human inhabitants. Yet no human, no man-made religion could ever accomplish what God has done through His Son, either in substance, perfection, or in manner. And while on the one hand, earth ought to be rejoicing in this victory over evil, on the other hand, the next verse issues a dire warning. Verse 12 says that those who are in heaven, spirit creatures, as well as the souls of believers, have every reason to rejoice but because Satan is now backed into a corner he knows his end is near earth and the sea are going to suffer his increased wrath let's end today's lesson with this prophecy about Satan's demise this found in the book of Isaiah Isaiah 14 7 through 15 
The whole earth is at rest and quiet. They break into song. The cypresses rejoice over you with the cedars of Lebanon. Now that you are laid low, no one comes to cut us down. Sheol below is stirred up to meet you when you come. It awakens for you the ghosts of the dead who are the leaders on earth. It makes all the kings of the nations arise from their thrones. And they all greet you with these words. Now you are as weak as we are. You have become like us. Your pride has been brought down to Sheol with the music of your lyres. Under you a mattress of maggots. Over you a blanket of worms. How did you come to fall from the heavens, morning star, son of the dawn? How did you come to be cut to the ground, conqueror of nations? You thought to yourself, I will scale the heavens. I will raise my throne above God's stars. I will sit on the mount of assembly far away in the north. I will rise past the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. Instead, you are brought down to Sheol to the uttermost depths of the pit. In his final moments of desperation, Satan is going to raise his level of fury to unimaginable heights. Taking it out on earth and those who live on earth. But then, his life clock runs out. The earth goes quiet and enters its rest. Satan is sent to the depths of the pit and shortly into the lake of fire, never to exist again. And we'll finish up chapter 12 and begin chapter 13 next time.